Hey, hey, water coolians. Vacation Adam here, bringing you another episode of the podcast. I'll try and keep everything uh, short and sweet here so we can all go back to enjoying the wonderful world of vacation. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Dr. Marie Nicolini. Dr. Nicolini and her lab lead the way in the understanding of the ethics of mental health and explore its impact on contemporary medicine, psychiatry, and humanity. As a warning for today's episode, we do discuss the topics of suicide and euthanasia. To be more clear, it's not a discussion going into the details of those topics, uh, but instead we focus our conversation around treatment and stigma uh, when it comes to suicide and the process and perception around end-of-life care. But as we uh, will discuss immediately following this introduction, Regardless of how we talk about a topic like this, you as the audience should always have a heads up and the ability to uh, decide what type of conversation and content you want to consume or don't want to consume. So so I, I'll, I'll leave it there. One of the themes throughout this episode is the idea of making conversations like these more accessible uh, rather than hidden in the darkness. Death is, is one of those concepts that we all have to address one day. Many of us have most likely already had to address it in some shape or form. And I, you know, I personally believe we need to start doing a better job normalizing these types of conversations. You know, these are, are not the type of conversations that we feel should only be had in hushed tones and behind closed doors. Really, by supporting one another and taking the time to understand the decision and reasons involved in the choice to end one's life, we can collectively really move towards a more empathetic, compassionate, and understanding society. That's the goal here. That's the show's goal here. So hopefully we're doing a good job doing it. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to episode 84 of Water Cooler Talk podcast titled Bad to Mad with Marie Nicolini. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. So one of the things I want to kind of get your thoughts on before we really jump into this episode is your thoughts on trigger warnings for obviously these types of conversations. And, you know, obviously as someone who has, is in the content creation space, you know, I try and stay more aware of who my audience is and what their past and present life experiences are. And at the same time, I want to allow them to, um, you know, have the choice to engage in these types of conversations if they want. But I also feel like, you know, trigger warnings can potentially hinder a conversation that should be uh, a more universally acceptable. Like, what are your thoughts on trigger warnings for these types of conversations? Well, that's an excellent question. I, I, I'm with you that, I mean, it's, I think, you know, many would agree that it's now part of sort of how we, you know, approach content creation or teaching, right, or any type of sort of public speaking or conferences. I mean, you know, to respond to the, the question with regard to this particular topic of, you know, euthanasia, suicide, right? Um, assisted suicide. The way I approach it, I typically include some type of trigger warning um, because I, I mean, I, I feel like it doesn't hinder, right? Like to your point of it might hinder. I mean, I, my experience has been um, more the opposite of if you don't do it, especially, I mean, I mean, you know, suicide is something people, you know, are more familiar with, but a lot of the things we're going to discuss today often 
are, you know, the first time someone hears about it. And, and so I think it really needs often a trigger warning just because people aren't necessarily prepared, you know, for what's coming. Um, that's one. And then, of course, you don't want to sort of re-trigger people who have, you know, certain mm-hmm. traumatic experiences. So, I mean, I'd, I think that the, the risk maybe is when people use trigger warning sort of, you know, the risk might be it sort of ends up being a little empty when you use it too often. So sort of standard, you know, but but certainly in this context, I think it's uh, indicated. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you and kind of explain that, you know, hindrance that I talked about. It's, I think exactly what you said there at the end, it's, you know, if we use it too much, it kind of loses its meaning. And so how do you decide on the type of content that obviously, you know, I will include it with this episode in our or in my introduction, but it's like, you know, what is the context for when it's needed? Because everyone has so many different experiences that you don't necessarily know how to address every single one of those experiences in a more personal matter. So you kind of have to, I mean, not play it safe in like a bad context, but play it safe in the fact that here's a warning and if you want to engage in this warning, at least you know upfront about what I'm warning you about. Right. Well, Maria, are you ready to jump into our very first story of this episode? Yes, I am. Jump into water cooler talk. All right. Uh, this is from The Guardian Immigration and Asylum, written by Toby Thomas, June 8th, 2022. People at risk of suicide have been threatened with deportation to Rwanda, have been told to learn a musical instrument or to try Sudoku instead of being offered counseling. One 40-year-old man, believed to be of East African descent, who had been detained at an immigration center in the UK after fleeing and being recognized as a survivor of torture, modern-day slavery, and human trafficking, wowzers, was given an assessment by medical health practitioners who reported that he was at risk of self-harm or suicide due to his experienced trauma. Despite the seriousness of his medical assessment, he was not offered counseling. Instead, he received a handout with suggestions on how to feel better, which included such suggestions as do a crossword or Sudoku, play an instrument or learn how to play one, punch a punching bag, do some coloring or paint, or try aromatherapy. Among many other refugees fleeing from tumultuous situations, each was given a letter from the Central and Northwest London NHS Foundation Trust that included the notice... You have been referred to the Psychology Wellbeing Service for support for the trauma that you have experienced in the past. Unfortunately, at present, we are unable to provide one-to-one psychology sessions due to unforeseen circumstances. The man, speaking to his experience and prospect of being sent to Rwanda, stated, I'm unable to think clearly because of the prospect of being sent to a country that is comparable or worse from what I undertook, a traumatizing and long journey to escape. Gina Skadari, a Duncan Lewis solicitor who represented the man, said the home office failed to take safeguarding measures when they were notified of his intention to kill himself. She stated, Trauma-related mental health issues require expert treatment. This cannot be substituted with a pack recommending aromatherapy and a new haircut. In light of the clear failings, the home office should reconsider its policy on detaining vulnerable people. In response, a home office spokesperson stated, The health and welfare of those in immigration detention is of the utmost importance to us. All immigration removal centers have dedicated health facilities run by doctors and nurses who provide mental health support to NHS England standards, while on-site welfare teams work to identify vulnerable individuals and provide support where necessary, including taking every step to prevent self-harm or suicide. So Maria, I kind of want to just begin this conversation with a bit of historical context of how society's perception of suicide 
has evolved over time, particularly in terms of it being viewed as a crime or moral wrongdoing to now it being understood as a mental health issue. Uh, But I thought you framed it quite interesting when you mentioned its evolution as bad to mad. Can you expand a, a bit on that framing and how our perception, humans' perception, of uh, suicide has really changed over time. That's a that's a great um, that's a great issue you bring up. I mean, the the whole bad versus mad, um, you know, sort of dichotomy has pervaded history, and so we, we you know we moved from a situation, sort of models where you know someone could be punished uh, for engaging in suicidal activity. Um, to a certain extent, it's still true in some countries, right? Uh, so to to it being viewed as a as a crime. Um, towards, you know, where it's viewed as a mental illness. That's one issue. The, you know, the situation, I mean, to sort of summarize, right, the, the, the sort of situation we're in now is that, you know, mostly suicide, suicidal activity, suicidal sort of ideation, you know, action is for practical reasons, perhaps, right? It may sort of consider it under the dominion of mental health, mm-hmm. even though we know that, well, we know from autopsy studies and so on that a vast majority of people who think about suicide, you know, have some type of mental condition or problem, um, but not necessarily, right? We know suicide is an issue that's existed since the beginning of times, and and one does not necessarily have to have a mental illness to be suicidal or vice versa. But as a matter of sort of practical organization, if you want, it falls under psychiatry, mental health. And so with that come sort of the problems of, you know, that mental health has been uh, struggling with, right? And I think that we'll touch upon a few times uh, today, you know, to, to stick to the, the issues here in, in this article, what is the spectrum of treatments, right? Like, how should we think of um, remedying it, right? Like, how should we, uh, what kind of treatments should be offered? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think it's uh, something that Obviously, as it's developed, you know, I was reading about, um, you know, ancient philosophers were talking about suicide back in the day and the ethical, uh, the ethics of suicide. And it was seen as kind of this honorable thing, um, you know, even going to kind of feudal Japan and the samurai and their decision with seppuku. But it was talked about just in the aspect of it being honorable. It wasn't talked about the, you know, the mental health aspect. And I think that came kind of later as we, you know, talked more about the subconscious, you know, kind of in the 19th century. Um, and obviously into today's modern day where we're really focused on this, as you were saying, as a mental health issue and kind of how the how do we treat it? Because before it was just like, yeah, it's whatever. It's an honorable way to go out or, um, but also, you know, and, you know, kind of explore this a little later, like the impact of religion on how we view suicide. Uh, you know, I know suicide is viewed as a sin within the Catholic uh, church. I still, I don't know if in, in modern day, if it still is. It is not considered a mortal sin in modern Catholicism and can be seen as an example of the ability of God to be merciful and understand circumstances beyond human understanding. But yeah, I think, you know, our treatments of how we understand people who struggle with mental health issues has definitely 
changed and improved. I mean, obviously going back to, you know, I know you listened to that episode with Katya, but going back to, you know, how we treated women during the witch trials, when really that should have been a much different scenario because of uh, what they went through. But as we've seen, you know, mental health change and our understanding of mental health and, you know, more money being able to be put into mental health and find out, you know, what really are these treatments that we need to uh, help people and help individuals like this man. Right. And I think, I mean, probably the, you know, one's first reaction when reading the title, at least, and even, even the, the, the article is, is some might be sort of disturbed, right. And be like, wait, why are people right. Told to get a haircut or, or do crosswords. And, you know, I, I think the takeaway, I think to sort of distill from this for me is that there is a, a wide range of potential treatments that could work. I mean, you know, maybe not getting the haircut, but, um, you know, some of the things on that long list might might work. It's not necessarily evidence-based, right? So we have, when it comes to treatment for suicidality, there are certain treatments that are evidence-based, right? Uh, where we've done studies and shown that this works, like certain types of stock therapy, certain medications, right, for certain conditions. Uh, so there, there is a sort of body of, evidence-based sort of treatments. Uh, but we also know that this is not exhaustive and that um, suicidality is, and, and mental health you know, issues are um, a, a broad problem, right? Uh, where the range of, of potential treatments is wide. No, I think, you know, what you said, kind of the perception is so important, the perception of treatment. When you think of somebody who, you know, might be self-harming or might have risk of self-harm or might have risk of suicide, at least from my perception, people tend to go to this idea that we need, I mean, uh, professional help, which is all these things are good, like you're saying, you know, getting professional help, um, getting this evidence based help, but also there are these corridors that we have yet to really explore that could be helpful, as you're saying, like, yeah, maybe if someone gets a haircut, maybe they, you know, feel better about their physical appearance. And maybe that helps them as far as their mental health, because when it comes to kind of what causes these issues, there's so many different reasons. It's kind of dangerous to try to pinpoint a few and then make conclusions based off of those few. Right. That's exactly that's exactly right. And another thing this article shows is that, well, along with sort of the risk of perhaps trivializing, right? I don't think they, the NHS or the article means to trivialize, but I think that's how it might come across when when one hears get a haircut when you know you're actually victim of modern day slavery, right? Um, <laughs> right. So, but what it, what the other thing though, is that it risks individualizing, right? The issue. Uh, and, and that comes back to the type of remedies, right? Because you, you're right. I mean, we have one thing is go to your, you know, medical professional, but we also know that, you know, peer support or family support or other types of support, non-professional professional support mm -hmm. also can be effective. Uh, just as we know that some medical interventions actually aren't effective or maybe harmful, right? So it's, it's, it's messy, actually, in terms of the range of interventions we have. But one thing that comes, you know, sort of uh, to the fore in this article is that, of course, when, when we're talking about it's such an extreme, in a way, example of, you know, People who are survivals of like the most just horrible things one can, you know, in our modern society sort of go through, right? Like human trafficking and, and, and war, I mean, um, which obviously is not an individual issue, right? Yep. So it, it, it touches on, again, I think it touches on the wide range and what do we count as potential 
remedies. And, and of course, sort of, you know, you don't need to be a professional to, or, you know, it's a very common sense thing to understand, well, you know, people fare better when there's no war, right? I mean, uh, and, and people's mental, right? I yeah, mean, no, it's, it's, it's completely true. It's an true. obvious thing, but it sort of shows that, right, that it's, it's, you're right. I mean, it cannot be limited to the medical understanding only or to what professionals have to offer, even though, even if, of course, this article seems to be the other example, right? The other sort of extreme where like, well, surely these people need more than a handout. Yeah. You know, obviously now, you know, going to this article, you know, specifically talking about this 40-year-old man who, you know, is endured an unmanageably challenging and traumatic path in life. Uh, but you have talked about the idea of suicide not being an uh, impulsive decision, which I agree with. Uh, obviously, he is the only one who really knows what's going on in his own mind. You know, but the medical team you know, was able to make an assessment based on you know, past data and studies to help us understand the impact you know, those types of experiences uh, would have on an individual. But kind of ending my long-winded journey to get to the question here, with suicide prevention, how do we more effectively distinguish between intervening because someone matters as a person, uh, you know, it's within their best interest, or because they don't matter as a non-person, overriding their preferences because we deem them, quote, irrational. And I think it might be important for you kind of to explain what irrational means in this sense. Well, thank you for that question. I mean, you're getting to the core of like some of the very, very hard questions in the field, um, you know, to, to start with the, the latter of like, what, you know, what do we mean when we say irrational and, and to a certain extent impulsive? So irrational, you know, and impulsive in this context often refers to the fact that people who engage in suicidal behavior, this is the idea, uh, always do so without forethought, sort of out of the blue, impulsively, right? Like the person who jumps off the bridge or wants to jump off the bridge or uh, the kind of what we call in clinical jargon, um, acute suicidality. Right. Um, but the what, you know, science shows and what we know from, you know, suicidology, the field of that studies suicide is that a lot of suicidal ideation and, and even, you know, people who engage in actions. Right. Um, have thought about it before. So that's about the sort of the, the planning, um, how much preparation, but also, you know, their irrationality. I mean, again, it's tricky because there are different ways to understand it and to define it, you know, in philosophy, but sort of common sense sort of uh, middle way understanding is to say someone who doesn't have their full mind, right? Someone who might be incapacitated mentally, you know, is not in their full mental possessions, right? Doesn't possess their full mental capacities like they would usually do. Like, that's usually what we understand by by irrational, right? Mm -hmm. um, okay. Yeah. I mean, and again, so you're, you're coming to sort of the core really of the issue is that coming back to that mad versus bad versus mad, right? Like one of the the very tricky, complicated issues is that when suicidality was considered a crime, per definition and sort of the assumption, right, is that someone has their full mental capacities and therefore they can be held accountable. You can only be accountable for a crime if you're um, assumed to have your full mental capacities and be rational. When we move to, and I'm, you know, simplifying here, right, but when we move to the the, the MAD model, right, the the model, the understanding that someone is mentally ill uh, when they're suicidal, we've sort of implicitly come to see it as, well, the person isn't accountable. They're not responsible because they don't have their full mind. My point is that we, there is just, there is so much work that needs to be done to clarify, first of all, right, like theoretically, but also in practice, because the issue in practice is that we sort of default to, well, if someone is 
you know, actively suicidal, well, they must not, you know, have their full minds. They must be mentally incapacitated. And therefore, we are justified in intervening. Mm-hmm. So we're, I mean, we're now sliding to the the other sort of extreme of the the spectrum, right? I mm-hmm. guess we have like triac crosswords, which is like, well, that doesn't quite cover it. To the other <laughs> extreme, which is, oh, you mentioned you want to die. We're going to hospitalize you against your will. Yeah. <laughs> right? So it's it's just, it's a huge spectrum, right? And I guess we, we went sort of from one end to the other. Uh, and of course, the thorny questions are at that one spectrum where the question coming back to, you know, looking at, which medical interventions might be harmful, not only not efficient, but maybe harmful. This is one of them that mm-hmm. we've been looking at recently, sort of more in detail of like, well, what are, you know, what are the outcomes when people are involuntarily committed against their will? Do they fare better? Right. And there's more and more evidence showing uh, they don't necessarily are better off when after two weeks of involuntary, you know, hospitalization. And then that's a problem. Yeah. And I think it comes down to, or, you know, once again, from, you know, my opinion, you're the expert here. Um, but like you talk about obviously compassion towards individuals who are struggling with this type of feelings. And, you know, especially when it's, you know, a family member who might be suicidal, you see them in such a specific way. And then when you understand that they're, you know, struggling mental uh, health reasons, they're, you know, thinking about suicide, it's, it's sometimes hard to really grasp your mind around the idea of, oh, this person that, I see this specific way has this entirely different way of seeing themselves. And I I do think people really struggle with that and want to try to help them, but at that same time kind of miss the mark in how to properly help them, you know, and not being maybe as supporting as that other person, you know, who's struggling with these suicidal thoughts might need because, you know, it is true. It's like, this is not something that people are just making like that. At least, you know, the stories I've heard and obviously anecdotal evidence isn't always, you know, the best to use. But for this situation, you know, the stories I've heard and the people I've talked to, it's like a buildup. It's like, you know, like a rocket ship. It's like the countdown. It's like, you know, fuel going into the injectors. Everything is building up to this moment where they decide to finally, you know, take their life. And it's not just... I'm going to decide to kill myself today. This has been going on for a long time. I've been struggling. And maybe, you know, I haven't been able to find the correct help I need. Uh, but that doesn't mean this is a, a rational decision I'm making. And, and you're right to point to the, the, the sort of added sense of loneliness that there often is by sort of not only not getting the right care, but, you know, often getting sort of a care that's, you know, overbearing or sort of overkill, but doesn't necessarily, right? Like, in fact, as you're saying, miss, misses the mark. I mean, you know, the, the reality of like someone shares that they are thinking about death, you know, to a professional and then professional feels compelled to, you know, call 911 or SWAT services or, or just even, you know, without sort of um, police intervention, the very fact of finding yourself in a hospital where you know you can get out and, you know, I mean, it, it's it's sort of alienating sort of experience, right? So we need to really look at, you know, additional, you know, what we call iatrogenic, right? Sort of medically induced almost harm, you know, which isn't to say people aren't helped by what uh, the medical community does, right? Again, like to your point, every, you know, I think, I mean, most professionals are are driven by indeed compassion and want to do what's best. But, but, you know, there's no question that the way things are set up now, it's, uh, it involves, it often involves force, it often involves, um, you know, sort of interventions that might not be needed. And there are enough, um, you know, emerging and, 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 you know, 
well-established sort of um, alternatives or sort of different kind of, um, you know, types of support, like mm -hmm. peer support, right, suicide talk groups, right, where people, um, you know, gather and, and get the sort of, you know, expertise and sort of expert support from people who've gone through the same. I mean, the, 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 the bottom line is just, I guess, when it comes to that the question of our response, right, the medical field, their response to to suicidality in general is that it, it actually needs in practice more compassion, right? Um, and it, it needs to not sort of freak out every time someone mentions it, because we, we know from studies, a lot of people have thought about it in their lives. I mean, a lot of, especially students, we know, you know, younger people, but, but across lifespan, uh, it's so common. It's, it's so very common that it's, it's almost odd that we haven't sort of caught up in, in, you know, have a better, you know, system of treatment than we have. Well, yeah, and especially considering, you know, kind of in terms of where the world is going, you know, the rising cost of living, you know, climate change, all these things that people think are, um, why even be a part of this world when it's all just going to end up in flames and, you know, which obviously is scary to think about. And it's also scary to hear someone, as you're saying, it's, it's very terrifying. I've had a good friend tell me they've had suicide thought, suicidal thoughts, and it's very scary. Mm -hmm. It is very scary, but... Also, at that same time, you have to understand that they're opening up to you for a reason. They feel safe with you. They feel like you're a safe person. But it is something you really have to address and you really have to start feeling comfortable with. And that's why I think having conversations like this kind of lead to that, having more open conversations around it. Uh, but I do think there's also a very big influence culturally. You know, this idea of shame is shared along a lot uh, from many cultures that if you're struggling with mental health, if you're struggling with any of these issues, if you have suicidal thoughts, you're bringing shame to, you know, your family, your friends, you know, your your work. And that is a real issue. And, you know, especially uh, around the world. And that's something that really has to be addressed through I don't really know what ways we can address that, uh, but, you know, we have to find ways to avoid making these harmful assumptions about mental health and suicide that really push people away from looking for help or seeking help or trying to find help or talking, at least opening up that conversation. Right, right. And I mean, when it comes to shame and sort of stigma more, you know, in mental health more broadly, um, you know, part, I mean, there are so many facets to it and then you know so many ways to you know address that issue but one thing that came to mind as you were saying is you know the very practical and, and often discriminatory policies that are in place everywhere in terms of employment in terms of insurance right like if if you you know there are many insurance policies or or yeah on the work floor where if you dis disclose that you've had a mental you know disorder or has have been hospitalized you know that could sort of be held against you or you you know you you lose eligibility you're I mean, yeah, this is just to say this is one and there, you know, there's how people perceive it, but also the the reality of how hard it is to actually and, and the real, you know, obstacles in place of, of policies that actually feed into that sense of shame or stigma or it's better if I keep it secret. Yeah, I think there really has to be a a public change in how we address mental health. And, you know, obviously, you know, we are getting better, we are able to have this conversation, I feel like, you know, 20, 30 years ago, this conversation would be much tougher to have than it is today. It just I, I, I do believe it really does start from, you know, people who are struggling, uh, feeling comfortable enough to open up. And we're seeing it a lot with obviously, you know, I think celebrity culture is kind of dangerous. But 
it is important for celebrities, for athletes. Uh, that's been coming up a lot. Athletes coming out about mental health. I do think those need to be kind of the pioneers of saying it's okay to not be okay. Right. I mean, definitely. And I'm with you. It's 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 hugely, I think, inspiring for so many people when world famous actors and and especially athletes and I mean, just you know, anyone who sort of is is willing to to share, you know, their struggle. Um, I, I think what's important and sort of coming back to the, you know, the policies or like society's response is um, that people, you know, not be sort of punished for that, right? I mean, I think the world mm. of like the Olympic, the, the Olympics were a good example, right? Where the whole world was sort of following like, okay, this is the thing, um, she had disclosed it and it's hard mm-hmm. and people get sort of insight into how hard and, and sort of the, the pressure, right? And the constraints and, and the things that athletes actually have to keep up with. And, and um, But then also, again, coming back to that shame and stigma, like the potential sort of, I don't want to say retaliation because that's too strong, right? But the, the sort of, well, you know, you shouldn't have said that, right? Like sort of the cost of almost like coming out mm-hmm. that just plays out in very different ways in different scenarios and different situations. But that often tells us sort of how far or not far enough we are to me, you know, in, in our societal sort of response, like how compassionate are we in response <laughs> to this? When, for example, athletes say, look, I, I can't play. You know, I, I remember like being surprised that, you know, so many people and, you know, people in the sport. Yeah, with Simone like, yeah, Biles. Right, exactly, yeah. with Simone Biles and, and people, you know, some, right? And and people in the sports world being like, look, you're paid for, just go. You know, you this is mm-hmm. your job. Like, you're not, it's not up to you, <laughs> which just seems, I mean, it seems like a horrible kind of response. It's, right? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, and I mean, I find this a lot where people have a specific view of the world. And when somebody doesn't fit in that view, they're very against whatever decisions they make without realizing the impact of maybe you have a family member who is struggling with mental health and they're hearing you say these things. I mean, Simone Biles did receive a lot of hate for deciding to focus on her mental health and not realizing that you know, there can be other people in your family, your friends, you know, your coworkers who are struggling with the same thing. And when they're hearing you say these things to someone like Simone Biles, they're going to be like, well, what are they going to say to me if I say that to them? And it once again, puts, I think, back to that word shame, it puts that shame on that person. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, I don't, I don't feel like I can, you know, I'm comfortable opening myself up to John. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Marie Nicolini. Dr. Nicolini is an incoming assistant professor of psychiatry, neurosurgery, and neuroscience at UT Southwestern in Dallas, where she will lead her lab in mental health ethics and exploring its impact on contemporary medicine, psychiatry, and humanity. Marie, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. It seems to me uh, many people who hear of someone who does the type of work you do, or they're somehow surrounded by the idea of death, like they want to know the inspiration or reason behind your decision to follow into that field. You know, I think it just plays upon humanity and our curiosity, which is fair. I'm always, you know, I'm on the I'm on the road that I believe the much more interesting question to ask is really, how has your journey in this field uh, shaped your perspective on life and death? <laughs> wow. Um, wow. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we don't have normal questions here. You're going to yeah, hear some unique right. questions today. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, you want me to go straight to the... <laughs> um, oh, okay. I mean, look, to 
you know, I don't know if maybe you expect a sort of wiser answer that I can give than what I can give, you know. Um, I want to say one word, maybe, you know, start with humility, maybe. I mean, in, in terms of understanding that you don't understand how complex, you know, people's realities are, but also actually how complex a certain subject can be. <laughs> um, and, and as a society, actually, when it comes to this sort of issue, you know, a sort of collective humility we should have, I think, in terms of understanding how little we know about what we're actually doing. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I don't mean it in a in a negative way, but it's it's certainly you know, it's a type of thing where you think it's one thing and you think you know the boundaries, and then the more you do, the more you realize just how profoundly complicated and 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 messy, right, mm -hmm. field of study is, and and especially one that's so clearly about life and death mm -hmm. it just touches on so many things yeah um, have i become wiser i, I mean i don't know <laughs> you know or, or do i have a certain <laughs> well i mean to life? be honest that was that was a quite you know a wise response so um okay but yeah i think <laughs> just this whole concept of life and death it, it's very scary to think about right because it's finality and i mean really do we know what is next after death is there anything after death is there anything before life you know uh, you know i spent i'm not a religious person uh but i spent a good year or two of my life just talking to a lot of religious leaders and really trying to figure out you know the concept of death and what death means in each of those religions and it scares you it's you know it's like there's so many different ideas of the end and what that means as far as something good and sometimes something bad. And through my life and the work I've done and the people I've been able to talk to, I've really focused on the importance of life and the importance of enjoying all these moments because, you know, life, death and taxes and the Cubs losing baseball, you know, all those things are going to happen uh, regardless of if you want them or not. And so taking the time to really enjoy every day and obviously, you know, every you're not going to be having the greatest day every day and that's okay. Um, but really understanding that, like, I was excited for this conversation today. I'm excited as we're doing this conversation, you know, I'm going on vacation in a week. I'm excited for that, you know, enjoying all these things that life is able to offer you because one day you're not going to be able to have those things. And that's kind of always been my view on it, focusing on, you know, the importance of life and what it can bring us and how death makes life important. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's a great way to put it. And, and I think that's the way I see it, the sort of the animosity around, you know, this, this sort of debate in general about, you know, suicide or euthanasia or, you know, assisted suicide. Um, uh, I, I think, it's one sort of collective wisdom that we all know, you know, life is important and everyone's lives matter. And it's important to try to strive as a society, you know, for everyone to live, you know, their fullest life, you know, and what we can do to, you know, help each other and sort of think about, you know, what structures we need uh, for people to live fulfilled and, and, and happy lives. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I, I think I, I, I totally agree. Given that we don't know, right, assuming we're sort of agnostic about <laughs> no, what right. happens. I mean, you know, at least in, in my uh, case. So you're, you're right. You're right. Um, I do like a little of the Buddhism, you know, coming back and doing something cool. But, uh, uh, but Marie, before we kind of go into this next story and kind of talk about um, you know, some of these very important topics. I think it might be important. Uh, can you talk a bit about the importance of clear language 
uh, especially when making policy, you know, between a physician assisted suicide, a person ingesting drugs themselves that are given to them uh, and euthanasia where a doctor administers the drug to the patient. And I know you've talked about the moral implications of responsibility uh, for that decision. You know, obviously, we'll get into that second question a little later here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I mean, part of why discussion about this issue is so difficult uh, is also because there are so many different terms. And of course, the, the, the fact that different terms exist is the result of how laden the situation is. So what I mean by that is we have, right, you said physician assisted suicide, euthanasia. There are other terms, right, like medical assistance in dying, uh, aid in dying, uh, and so forth, right? So just br- broadly, there are a number of terms beyond those two. Now, you're right that in in practical terms, right? There are only two main sort of uh, different procedures, if you want. Okay. Uh, so both are at a patient's request, but in the first physician-assisted suicide or physician-assisted death, a patient asks for a prescription of a drug and then they ingest it on their own versus with euthanasia, as you said, so the person asks it to the physician and the physician uh, prescribes and then um, administers the um, the lethal drug. So just to, you know, make it confusing, I mean, for example, Canada uses the term medical assistance in dying. By that, they actually, that comprises both, right, what we would call assisted suicide and euthanasia. The way it's used in, in, in the U.S., for example, physician aid in dying often refers only to the assisted suicide part because there is no euthanasia in allowed in the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's It's always hard because I realize that it makes things complicated to sort of start with distinguishing them, but it is important to distinguish, uh, you know, for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into. But it's also for other reasons important to take them together because some of the questions really apply, you know, apply to those two practices, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, because what they have in common is that a physician, you know, actually provides assistance, right, with active assistance with ending someone's life. Um, you know, I tend to use assisted death sort of as an umbrella term to include both euthanasia and assisted suicide, yeah. especially also because the countries that allow, you know, that have the more sort of, you know, permissive and, you know, laws and longer experience uh, tend to allow both, right? And Canada also allows for both, mm-hmm. but with the sort of, you know, caveat that, you know, when we talk about the U.S., um, there is no euthanasia. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we'll get to the very lenient laws in Canada. Um, but yeah, obviously, I just wanted to kind of address that real quick, because obviously, when we talk about making policy, when we talk about the language of that policy, it's so important that, you know, we're as clear as possible on understanding that, you know, not all words, even though they may mean something similar, are not interchangeable. And I think that's important, especially when it comes to uh, something like this. Right. Before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. And on the day of the episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you listening to this episode to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. Marie, you allowed me to choose a a previous recipient for today's episode. And for that decision, I believe a good fit within the context of our conversation is the Trevor Project. Uh, the Trevor Project offers toll-free numbers for LGBTQ plus individuals where they can receive confidential assistance provided by trained counselors, 
as someone who has many friends and acquaintances in that space and hearing their stories of often having a lack of support within the home, having that option is always, uh, I believe, a step in the right direction. And I know recently in England, where you know a good percentage of our audience is, they have moved towards forcing teachers to tell parents if one of the students wants to go by a different name, wear a different uniform, or use different pronouns. Uh, so I do believe it's important, as we talked about in that first story, that we continue to provide outlets for those who may not have the necessary support uh, within their family. All right, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the day or our next news story of the day as well? Yes, I am. This is from the Associated Press World News written by Maria Cheng, June 28th, 2023. Some Dutch people seeking euthanasia cite autism or intellectual disabilities. Several individuals with autism and intellectual disabilities have been legally euthanized in the Netherlands in recent years because they said they could not lead normal, ordinary lives. In 2002, the Netherlands became the first country to legalize euthanasia for those who met strict requirements, which includes those considered to be suffering unbearable pain or mental suffering. Between 2012 and 2021, nearly 60,000 people were killed at their own request, according to the Dutch government's Euthanasia Review Committee. The committee, to show how the rules are applied in interpreted, released documents related to more than 900 of those individuals. Along with colleagues Irene Tuffrewine, a palliative care specialist at Britain's Kingston University, reviewed the public documents to see how Dutch doctors were dealing with euthanasia requests from people with autism or lifelong mental impairments. A large majority, uh, just to be clear, a large majority of the over 900 publicly available cases were older and had serious neurological and medical conditions such as cancer, Parkinson's, and ALS. Tuffrey Wine and her colleagues found that among the 900 or so cases, 39 of those cases were autistic and or intellectually disabled. A handful of those 39 were elderly, but 18 of them were younger than the age of 50, and five of the individuals were younger than the age of 30. Many of those 39 cases cited different combinations of mental problems, physical ailments, diseases, or aging-related difficulties as reasons for seeking euthanasia. 30 of those included being lonely as a cause of their pain, and eight said their suffering was linked to their intellectual disability or autism, social isolation, a lack of coping strategies, or an inability to adjust their thinking. Tuffrey Wine stated, There's no doubt in my mind these people were suffering, but is society really okay with sending this message? That there's no other way to help them? It's just better to be dead. Among the eight patients cited as having their suffering linked to their intellectual disability or autism was an autistic man in his 20s whose record consisted of excerpts such as, The patient had felt unhappy since childhood, was regularly bullied, and longed for social contacts but was unable to connect with others. He had decided to choose euthanasia after deciding to live on this way for years was an abomination. Whew. In one third of cases, Dutch doctors concluded autism and intellectual disabilities were untreatable and that there were no prospects of improvement, the researchers wrote. Simon Baron Cohen, director of Cambridge's University Autism Research Center stated, it was abhorrent that people with autism were being euthanized without being offered further support. Many struggle with depression, which could compromise their ability to make a lawful request to die. They might not grasp the complexity of their situation. Dr. Bram Sazu, a Dutch psychiatrist, shared a strong opinion on the matter. Some of them, the autistic patients, are almost excited at the prospect of death. They think this will be the end of all their problems and the end of all their family problems. Oh, <laughs> all right. Well, let's get into this one. Uh, in much of your work that I've had the chance to look over 
in preparation for this episode, you highlight the lack of research and policy uh, regarding the ethics of making end-of-life decisions for terminal uh, versus non-terminal illness. This article and Irene and her team explore, obviously, the non-terminal side of that equation, which although is, you know, obviously much less common to happen, still does happen. And the conversation still needs to be had. But how, at least of what what you found, how do we come to define what is unbearable, uncurable versus what is bearable, curable? And who who should be making that decision? Should it be doctors, psychiatrists, the patients, their parents? I'm very interested to kind of know, you know, from your experience, your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, and I mean, you touch on some of the core issues there. You know, I'll just to set us off, I'll just start with so people have a general sense of the, the tree requirements, you know, um, mostly across jurisdictions, you know, it varies, but is, you know, as you mentioned, unbearable suffering is one, having an incurable medical condition or disability uh, is a second, and then, um, you know, being able to make an informed, uh, well-considered, you know, uh, request. Um, and so much of the discussion, there is a lot of discussion around each of these. Uh, But to your question of, you know, who decides the unbearable suffering requirement is it's sort of, you know, accepted across, you know, jurisdictions and in general that it's uh, it's meant to be, you know, patient subjective. Right. So a clinician still has to assess the patient um, and sort of, you know, acknowledge that indeed it's it's unbearable, but it's it's almost per definition uh, subjective. Um, That's for the unbearable suffering requirement. For the incurable uh, condition, that's where there's a a lot of debate. That's kind of where the gray area is. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, Because depending on the conditions we're talking about, it's unclear, you know, whether we have, whether the medical community has a clear definition of what it means, right? So to start with a a clear example, right, is end-stage cancer, right? Like if someone... Um, you know, has an aggressive tumor and, and you know, the scientific community can say, look, in, in, in these cases, based on these findings on the scanner and the fact that someone, you know, didn't respond perhaps to certain treatment, you know, we know it's, it's incurable. That kind of determination is, is harder to make in other kinds of conditions, especially mental conditions. So that, I mean, that's one example of of, of the struggle uh, is, is well, lawmakers, right, policymakers say one thing. They're like, well, you know, you can, you know, euthanasia or assist suicide, you know, that it, it's permitted, provided, you know, these three requirements, um, sort of assuming that the scientific community sort of uh, is aligned when it comes to defining, you know, which condition is incurable and under, you know, when we can say something is incurable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's uh, obviously, as you're saying, there's so much leeway between like what is and isn't the possibilities of that. It can be very interesting, especially, you know, talking about something like autism, where uh, like what Dr. Bram Sazu said, like they think this will end all of their problems and end all of their family problems. And, you know, they might not be able to understand the complexity of the situation that they are deciding on. 
which can become very dangerous. And obviously, when it's end of life situations, because like, if you go to the store, and you're like, I want to get, you know, cool ranch Doritos, and then you come back and you eat a few Doritos, and you're like, oh, I really wanted the nacho Doritos. Like you, th- that's, that's one of those decisions that's not going to dramatically impact your life. You can go back and you can make that decision. But here is a scenario where once you make that decision, there's no going back from it. And so it has to be a, a very understandable situation where you understand the complete complexity of ending one's life. And I think that's very interesting is like, how do we define who is mentally capable of making that decision? You know, what is like that line in the sand? And then are we doing it, you know, for every person? Are we changing the line in the sand? Or do we have to get this one line in the sand? And how do we determine who is mentally capable of making that decision? And how do we determine what is needed in that realm of being mentally capable. It's a, it's a great point. And I mean, because it, it touches on, you know, so many different issues. Um, often when it comes to mental disorders, the sort of objection of, or worry comes up of like, well, but are, you know, people understanding, you know, are they, do they have capacity, right? Like to understand. Um, I just want to say sort of almost up front that it's, you know, there are cases where people, you know, who wouldn't pass the, the, the capacity test, as we call it, right? We have in medicine a sort of test that's being done to sort of assess if someone, you know, has the ability to understand, to reason, uh, you know, to communicate what their okay. wish is, right? So there is a sort of standard test we use, and, you know, you can apply it in this context, although one of the main issues is what are they consenting to? I mean, who can, what, you know, some people say can... Does anyone even understand what it means, you know, to choose to die, you know, as opposed to understanding if I don't get this treatment, I'll die. Right. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing of understanding, I so it depends. So, you know, not to go um, on a tangent, I guess my main point, though, that I want to you know, say is that a vast majority of people, be it with autism or with mental disorders, and especially from what we see in research, do have that mental capacity. Um, Sometimes people think, oh, if you're mentally ill, you know, you you don't know what, you know, what what you want, what you're doing. Uh, But, you know, the reality is sort of less, you know, sort of more, Mm -hmm. you know, down to earth, sort of mundane in a way of like people, you know, struggle with mental health issues. But, you know, they they would pass a capacity test. Many would. And especially those who get to the point where they've asked and discussed with their physician, right? So so not to say that it isn't a real uh, worry, right? But I think in, in practice, physicians are able to, you know, distill, you know, people who would have an acute, say, acute crisis and, you know, aren't able to make that decision. Like those will be filtered out. But what's a harder difficulty for the field is to say, what kind of test are we going to use, right? And that's a conceptual question, right? Of like, are we going to use that capacity test or it, should we have a specific one for euthanasia? But if so, what does it look like? No, I think that's really good to know. And I'm glad you shared that, you know, because I think, I mean, speaking to a more Western culture, it's good to know that when these decisions are made, there's a lot more solid reasoning than, you know, one would be led to believe. Yeah. At least for the public to know. Yeah, no, it's great you point that out because, and that's, it's a bit of a side note, but not really, is that it's so potentially inflammatory, right? The, the topic, but also how it's brought in the media, right? I mean, and to your, you know, your, 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 your <laughs> intro to your podcast of like, is it real or is it fake? You know, sometimes people who've never heard of it really think it's, fake news, right? Yep. They hear things that they're like, well, it 
possibly can be true and sort of the media presents it in such a way where they're like, you know, let's kill, you know, the mentally, I mean, just like horrible sort of language, right? Where people think, no, it can't, can't be real. And then, but the problem though, is that if that kind of language is being fueled, we sort of miss the mark and forget that, yes, there are, you know, rigorous discussions around this. And for starters, it's always at at a person's request, right? It's not like a physician can decide to administer euthanasia against someone's will, right? But it just, Mm -hmm. there is sort of, you know, fair dose of sort of fear mongering often going on, which doesn't help to have, you know, sort of rational, constructive um, debate. But that being said, though, right? So, you know, yes, the models in place, you know, have safeguards. And it's questionable whether they always work, right? But, but of course, the sort of objection of abuse, um, you, you can make that for any ethically complex uh, practice, right? You can always raise the objection of like, well, but, you know, what if, you know, physicians are abusive? or That is a worry, right? But the, the thing that I want to focus on and where I think we have a lot of you know, way to go is to actually think about even assuming we all are in this together and we want to do the right thing. What is the right thing to do? Right. And mm-hmm. that's that's the hard question. No, I think I mean, I think we're getting into a good flow state because you perfectly kind of segued into kind of my next conversation here. Uh, you know, obviously working our way into the gender gap of end of life decisions. You know, your paper, Psychiatry, Euthanasia, Suicide and the Role of Gender. Uh, shares the statistic that 69 to 77% of those who request and receive euthanasia and assisted suicide, EAS, uh, for psychiatry conditions are women. And that's that's a wild stat. Like, why is that not a bigger conversation that's being had? Yes, too. It's wild stat. And, uh, you know, why aren't we talking more about it? You're right. We, we should. We definitely should. Um, part of it is because you know, the sort of evidence about the practice is fairly recent, but, you know, not that recent that, you know, I mean, it's it's a few years, right? But in, in the two-decade history of euthanasia and suicide practice in, in Europe, it's it's fairly recent that we have just data at all about what the practice looks like when it comes to mental disorders. But you're right. I mean, we we, we should, it's a, it's a big issue that we need to talk about because, of course, we know, I mean, it's a great, uh, test case sort of, or, you know, sort of paradigm issue uh, to look at, you know, how people might sort of get to an explaining this gender gap, right? Where people might be tempted to say, well, there are biological hormonal differences that make women more prone to being depressed. And then, you know, sort of medical understanding of this when the reality and the more compelling case is that, of course, you know, the, the greater disadvantage people, you know, women um, uh, sort of face and the obstacles and the, you know, gender-based violence and the mm-hmm. discrimination. I mean, all, all the the different, you know, be it on the work floor or, uh, you know, unequal opportunities, right? So um, it, it's, we can't dismiss the social aspect, yes. right? I mean, it just seems way too simplistic to think, well, women are more likely to, to be depressed uh, because of biological reasons. I mean, that just sort of misses the mark. So, yeah, I mean, you know, why is it, you know, that women and in adding to that, right, to that sort of argument of it's not just biological, is that what we know from, you know, uh, emerging research is that the reasons people and especially women cite go beyond, you know, their mental disorders, right? They cite 
reasons like socioeconomic factors, right? Uh, poverty, loneliness, right? Not having support, unemployment, coming back to, you know, it's very hard to be employed if you have a serious mental condition. Um, it's sort of closed to you. I mean, there just aren't many options, people. So so all these societal factors play play a role into why, and we know that now, like we have enough evidence to know that's why people actually ask for euthanasia mm-hmm. uh, and why it's disproportionately women. Yeah, I thought it was such an interesting kind of paper to read because, I mean, obviously I go through life with a very different experience as a man. And so it's not not that I'm like purposely not thinking about it, but something that like, all right, I'm spending more time focused on men's mental health and that conversation around that and being able to help people with similar experiences because I don't have those experiences. I don't want to speak on those experiences when there's people that actually have those experiences and can speak better on those experiences. But I do think there are this this social aspect. Obviously, we talked about, you know, the witch trials earlier um, in that episode with Katya Lovejoy. We talked about like hysteria and, you know, how that was used to kind of, you know, uh, control women. And even, I mean, maybe this is just my perception. And if I'm wrong, please correct me. Um, But when we talk about end of life kind of situations and say, you know, movies or books, uh, uh, it's always angelic or uh, lovely for women. But for men, it's like heroic and, you know, blaze of glory. You know, we can talk about like Ophelia from Hamlet. And there's that painting by uh, Malay where she's laying backwards in the pond singing the song as she they don't address it in you know the play they say she fell in but as she you know has the struggle with the death of her uh, a father um, there's Evelyn McHale who she was the one who jumped off the Empire State Building and it was called the most beautiful suicide but then you have you know all these uh, things with when it comes to men, it's like, it's heroic. It's, you know, I don't know if you're a Star Trek fan, but uh, Spock at the end of Rathacon going into the, the situation where he knows, you know, this is going to be his end of life, but it's heroic. Or it's, you know, Beowulf versus the the fire-breathing dragon at the end of Beowulf. And at least from my perception, and maybe I'm just watching and reading the wrong content, you know, I know like the awakening uh, with Edna walking into the ocean at the end of the story, killing herself, but doing so because it's liberation, it's her defiance. And I know there are examples of that, but at least from the content I'm consuming, and maybe, like I said, maybe it's on me, I tend to see that when we talk about you know, the death of women, it's very, like I was saying, angelic, lovely. And when it's the death of men, it's the blaze of glory, it's heroic. And I don't know if that's something you experience, or it's just kind of a solo experience over here. Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, it's, it's, it's great you're sharing that. And also, it, it, you know, it made me make the link with the fact that the cases that you know, the anecdotal sort of reports in the media uh, around euthanasia, especially when based on a mental disorder, have mostly been uh, of women. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it, it, it sort of tracks what the data also show, but but there is also, that's also often what we get to see. Uh, and, and, you know, the thing though is, you know, I and, and people worry about is sort of, you know, are we a little too um, willing to accept women's suffering? Right. I mean, you know, when it comes to this issue of euthanasia and the suicide, right, because, you know, we know from data there are all sorts of ages. Right. Like, I mean, and, and there is no restriction on age. I mean, but once one is um, above 18, but but the, what we know from, you know, my research and and. And more broadly, um, most people tend to be a little older, right? Women uh, have multiple sort of other, you know, also physical disabilities. And often, you know, people aren't, you know, mobile or mm-hmm. uh, and, and so on. So just, you know, sort of different, you know, difficult situations. And where I think 
the risk is that if you know that we get a little too comfortable with well yeah i mean what's what's left you know for someone who you know is older and and you know a single woman i mean to character i mean to sort of how do you say um not as a parody, but sort of that's that's kind of the, the the worry, right? Is that because it all comes down to it's a physician who has to sign off, right? And and sort of mm-hmm. make that distinction. I mean, the, the worry is that implicit assumptions of physicians play a role in whom they think sort of would be better off dead, okay, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, like that's what I was thinking as you're saying it. Like, does it play a factor that most of these? Uh, physicians making these decisions might not have the same shared experiences of the people deciding to end their life, do assisted death, as you kind of had that umbrella term. Yeah. And I I mean, you know, that's a great point because it's it's the heart of the debate right now in, in, in Canada. And, you know, more broadly is a call for a more inclusive debate that involves, right, the voices of those who are uh, whose lives are at stake, right? So be mm-hmm. it the disability community or people with, you know, mental disorders. Um, we know, I mean, not, f- I mean, from sort of the ethics of end-of-life decisions more broadly, right? It's well documented in bioethics and other literature that, you know, there is a physician bias, right? In terms of in terms of their judgment of uh, someone's quality of life, right? So, I mean, that that comes, you know, that sort of circling back to the unbearable suffering, right? But mm-hmm. the, the the worry is, well, are physicians, you know, are they best placed based on what, as you're saying, based on what are they making decisions about, mm-hmm. you know, what the quality of life is of someone who has a disability or a, a mental disorder? And, and so there is a, a wider call for more sort of input at the level of the debate itself, Right. Because the, the tendency has been, especially in, in Canada, but a bit everywhere, to show only one um, side. Right. Uh, which is to say, well, it's it's it just it's horrible. Yeah, it's it's horrible to live with certain disabilities or it's it's horrible to face uh, the consequences of living with a disability. Uh, therefore, you know, you should one should have that option. And some some people, that's what they say. But the the, the pushback has been to say, look, there hasn't been enough you know, you haven't listened enough, right? This is the call to policymakers. You haven't listened enough to mm-hmm. like the the large and in fact body of scholarship uh, saying, you know, that it's not necessarily a bad life. And, and that needs to be factored into it because otherwise we risk equating having a disability with suffering unbearably with, you know, mm-hmm. it being irremediable. And then to the, the worry of people who worry it's discriminatory, right? If you start conflating all of these, then having a serious disability is sort of sufficient to be eligible, right, for, for euthanasia or yeah. suicide. And that is a bit the worry. Uh, if, if we don't actually think about what do we mean, you know, how do we define these different uh, concepts. Well, yeah, and I mean, getting into kind of the uh, the the lenient euthanasia laws in Canada. You know, I read uh, the story about the man who decided to end his life, and his medical reason was quoted as hearing loss. Um, you know, also sounded like he might not have fully understood the decision. You know, but echoing the lur- the words of Irene from the article one last time. You know, is society really okay with sending this message that there's no other way to help them? Uh, obviously, she was talking about in autistic patients in that scenario. But what does euthanasia for those with mental disorders reveal kind of about our societal and kind of what you were just talking about, societal attitudes towards those who struggle with being sociably accepted? 
because I do think loneliness does play a very, very big factor in, you know, not feeling like you're a part of a community. I mean, I talk about this all the time on the podcast, but so much of what it means to be a human is to be a human with other humans. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. that's the basis of humanity is to be together, to be community. That's how we've gotten to where we are today. But if you don't feel like you necessarily fit in with that group, you have trouble, you know, being sociably out there with other people, I can see how loneliness does play a huge factor or the struggles of your personal disability play a huge factor in your decision to be more accepting to something uh, like the along the lines of assisted death. I, that's beautiful how you connect the loneliness with the the experience um, you know, of having a disability because yes, I mean, you're right. And, and much of the heated debate in Canada has been about cases like that where people were um, you know, forthcoming about saying, look, if, if I weren't in this social situation, I mean, I, I wouldn't ask for it, you know, again, accepted, I mean, within disability community, within scholarship that it's often having the disability or disorder itself is not what's, uh, so much, you know, what's hard to live with as much as all the other things around it, right. That you're being excluded from social, certain, you know, social circles or just, just very, you know, practically, I mean, all the obstacles that people, face on it on a daily basis. And and so, I mean, you know, to your point of what does that say about our societal attitudes? I mean, I think that's a very, very important question. And and one that's tricky because, you know, there there's a lot of discussion, right? Are these uh laws discriminatory, right? Mm-hmm. Are they actually discriminatory towards people with disabilities, right? To say it broadly, because that's sort of where um, much of the debate sort of hinges on. And, and I, you know, I like to distinguish the the intent and effect, right? Because the, the thing is, I mean, often where it gets sort of stuck is because, you know, one side of debate says, well, you know, there is a discriminatory intent behind those laws, you know, like, like in that article saying, well, this is eugenics, right? Yep. People who are in favor of more permissive laws, uh, you know, tend to be defensive because, you know, it's it's not, I mean, it's very rare, if, if not non-existent, I think, to have the type of uh, justifications like we, you know, had in sort of Nazi, Nazi Germany of like, right, it's, it's, I haven't come across someone saying, yes, we would be better off in a world without people with disabilities, right? I mean, people yeah. usually on both sides of the debate, I like to believe, and that's sort of my experience, that both are driven by compassion and are sort of thinking, well, what kind of policies are most compassionate towards those who suffer unbearably, right? So that's the intent. The way I see it is that, you know, we can debate about the intent, and of course, it's important but I think, you know, as a matter of policy, what's more important is to look at the effect, right? Like, mm-hmm. because that's something that we can actually work with is to say, okay, you know, what policy is potentially, you know, is discriminatory within the realm of effects, you know, we can look at, we can sort of uh, look at the different uh, subsections, right? Like, well, one is how is it being applied, right? What we talked about, like how are physicians gonna sort of target certain people, you know, based on their own implicit biases, right? That's one way in which it could be discriminatory. Mm -hmm. But also on the long run, right? People worry about, well, are we normalizing, right? The sort of euthanasia or assisted suicide as an option for people uh, with disabilities. Instead of like society, like being better about accepting these people, they can actually take this or they can take this option instead of like, hey, we don't have to change you just decide to end your life. Right, right. There's the, yeah, exactly, exactly. The word might okay. sort of stall certain 
discussions about other things that we potentially could do in terms of improving, you know, people's uh, people's lives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So sort of, and, and just general, I mean, it, that's harder to, to measure, right. But sort of on the long run, that, that kind of how comfortable we get with, with that kind of idea. Right. And, and that's something that people find sort of potentially creepy, right. Of like, well, we we're today, we're talking about this, but, but 50, 50 years down the line, are we going to find it just normally perfectly acceptable, mm-hmm. you know, that a physician brings it up and that, you know, people, you know, receive euthanasia and are gone. Um, I guess I'm, I'm saying this because, you know, there are other areas I think where we have or are having these conversations. And I think where people do understand how your intent or lack of intent doesn't necessarily matter, right? Like if, 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 if we talk about, I mean, racism, right? For example, something people are more conscious about in terms of policies. It's one thing to say, I mean, you can have actively racist policies with a racist intent, mm-hmm. like there's been and there continue to be. That's one type, right? Um, and that's that's horrible, of course. Mm-hmm. But then you have those that are neutral or claim to be colorblind, let's say, but that we know have a downstream discriminatory effect because we know that even though being neutral, they affect certain populations differently and disproportionately. Some groups are worse off. So it's similar here. I I like to sort of stay away, although it's important, right, to to figure out what's really the intent of these euthanasia laws. But I think really where the work is at is to figure out the, the effect, right? Like how you know, how discriminatory is it once you apply it? Mm-hmm. Even if, even if, you know, we're all driven by a same sense of compassion of we want to help people who suffer unbearably. Yeah, I think that intent versus effect really, really like helped me, me at least, I hope the listeners as well, but really helped me kind of put it into perspective and really understand it in kind of a very clear way and how we look at it in this context. But uh, Maria, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most bizarre news stories that it has to offer in an engaging, productive, and meaningful conversation. Listener, if you would like to continue to hear about Maria and her work, you can do so by heading to her website, www.marienicolini.com, or investigating her thoughts and tweets over on Twitter at Nicolini Me. Once again, uh, www.marianicolini or on Twitter at Nicolini Me M E. And as always, that link will be included in the description of this episode and our podcast website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So in a previous episode, the guest and I explored the linguistic concept of the euphemism treadmill, how we create these euphemisms to describe something, for example, a toilet being called a bathroom, but over time we continually need to substitute a new word because the meaning still exists, uh, but we want to change kind of what that word means, you know, now calling a bathroom a restroom. Uh, And I believe the example from that episode was centered around the linguistic history of being mentally challenged. Uh, How have you seen the same concept exist within the mental health world, especially when it comes to the change in leg with words like crazy, lunatic, hysterical, psychotic, kind of that those types of words and now where they are today. That's a that's a great point because it actually uh, converges with what I, you know, sort of was going in my thoughts in terms of the field of psychiatry and mental health is changing so deeply right now where, you know, not only do we, you know, is there a lot of discussion around, you know, why you shouldn't say mentally challenged or why you shouldn't say, you know, crazy in a derogatory term, right? Um, Especially to say crazy to mean 
that something bad, right? Like the, oh, that's crazy, right? Like the, um, to mean, you know, this, this is, yeah, morally, you know, reprehensible. So, so that kind of implicit linking of, you know, mentally ill, therefore bad, right? That's, that's extremely, of course, harmful. And, and so that kind of consciousness, a sort of growing awareness is, is very important. And the exciting part is that it's a reflection. These conversations we're having are a reflection of how the field is changing, how new models are emerging for understanding what it means to have a mental disorder uh, or, you know, mental difference, because that's really the core really is that new models, right? Like the neurodiversity model, right? The Matt Pride, right? These sort of uh, models. And again, you know, both grassroots and, and scholarly that think about, you know, how, what can be sort of more empowering um, for people and, and how can we understand mental disorders mm-hmm. as, you know, as Singer has described it, you know, different kinds of minds, um, and, you know, to cite the example of autism, because we've, you know, you've touched uh, upon it a few times. Um, autism is, is a great example of something, you know, um, a condition that definitely within the neurodiversity community is sort of accepted or, or seen by many as not as a mental condition, medical condition, even not as something to be cured, but as part of one's identity. And one can, you know, need help for certain, you know, support for certain things. But the autism itself is not what needs to be cured, right? The again, the exciting thing, I mean, and, and what really, I mean, the the euthanasia debate, as much as you know, as heavy and sort of you know sad and everything as it is, right? The positive, the sort of the upshoot, you know, is that it forces us to think about what do we mean by a mental disorder, by an incurable mental disorder, mm-hmm. right? Because it's one thing for policymakers to say, well, you know, just make an assessment, and but then when you're dealing with uh, a group of conditions where some of them aren't even considered something to be cured, <laughs> right? Um, you're, you're in a much murkier territory. And again, the, the, the good thing is that, you know, there is so much more input from people with lived experience from sort of, you know, just more exciting and, and, and rich sort of interpretations uh, that go beyond a sort of medical deficit model of like, well, you, you know, you have depression because you lack you know, certain chemical, um, you know, neurotransmitters in your brain. Um, we know that's not true, right? We know that kind of analogy with the medical world, with physical conditions doesn't hold true. And we know that symptoms, you know, or, you know, what characterizes a condition isn't necessarily something that people want to get rid of. Yeah, I think as, as, as far as we're always like expanding the data that we take in, we're being more inclusive about the kind of data that we take in. Obviously, the language around, you know, what we're studying, what we're really looking into is going to change because it's becoming more, uh, that language is going to become more inclusive to the data set. I mean, obviously, (laughs) these are people, they're just not data sets, but, you know, it's going to become more inclusive and we will have to continually change that language and change how we talk about it. So more and more people feel like when we're addressing something that they're included in that and they're just not the outlier and feel like they don't fit in. And going back, obviously, to that, you know, thing we talked about loneliness and not fitting in and feeling like, you know, your disorder is the reason that you're not fitting in when really it's societal standards of, hey, what's going on here? Right. And of negative, like, uh, of tropes, right? I mean, of I think one of the most harmful one is that connection with 
with violence and with immoral behavior. I mean, to come back, you know, and it has its basic to come back to your very beginning, right? Of mad and mm-hmm. bad, right? It's sort of, even though we're like, we, we're like, well, yeah, if you have a mental disorder, you're not a criminal. You know, I think most people, you know, see that these are not linked. And yet it's very common in, you know, in everyday speak to hear people assume that if someone was violent, you know, they were mentally ill or to say, yeah, that crazy person, you know, the shooter. Mm-hmm. Is cr- and, and that, of course, harms because the vast majority of people with a mental disorder aren't violent, right? Or, or do not engage in, in immoral behavior. So that's sort of a stereotype that isn't, you know, true. I mean, per definition, but that isn't adequate, but that sort of continues to fuel that stigma. Yeah. Marie, you are an awesome podcast host because wrapping it back up to the beginning on bad to mad i love it uh but marie we <laughs> have now host, great arrived host. Uh, thank you we have now arrived to my favorite part of the conversation you know i get to unbuckle the metaphorical seatbelt, get out of the car toss the keys majestically to you in the air towards you in slow motion with some awesome 80s music playing in the background and take my seat as the passenger prince Also, you can take control of the metaphorical wheel of this show, of this podcast, which one commenter described as just a guy droning on about things he doesn't know. His ego must be the size of Jupiter uh, (laughs) and drive this episode home safely and soundly. No pressure. The floor is yours. Uh, Wrap up this conversation with a few final words and thoughts to send the listeners home pondering the future of psychiatric care and the role of mental health professionals in navigating the complex terrain of how we improve conversations around end-of-life discussions. We're living in unprecedented times where questions around mental health and what counts as treatment um, are extremely complex, but also um, changing and um, with exciting new developments, uh, inclusive developments that actually make a change and are aimed at, you know, furthering social change. And so to me, as again, as much as this question, that's, you know, pretty hard to take in if, if it's not one's bread and butter, right, to think about euthanasia all day, which, you know, I'm happy uh, most people get to do something else, you know, than that, uh, you know, as, as, as sort of weighty the issue is, it really is a, an opportunity and urgent, but, you know, also extremely challenging and and potentially positive opportunity to really think through at all levels what we're doing, right? And what good, what justification we have to do what we do um, and to listen to what people say, what patients say when they say something doesn't work or what they would need, right? To actually coming back to your point of, you know, listening and and it's just so important to actually listen to what people have to say and how we can learn from this and how the academic community and medical community can work together uh, to establish real change. Well, Marie, you drive us home very safely and soundly there. I loved it. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for this conversation. You have been you know, an awesome guest. I feel you know, I felt very comfortable. Obviously, going into this conversation, it's, it's a big topic and it's a topic that, you know, if you haven't spent time, you know, really exploring and really uh, studying, and it's hard to kind of take on, but you made it very comfortable for me. Hopefully, I made it comfortable back for you. Uh, but I'm very thankful for having you on the podcast today. I'm very grateful, Stu. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. Because they're real.